This program deals with themes of an adult nature and is intended for a mature audience. The very word secrecy is repugnant in a free and open society. And we are, as a people, inherently and historically opposed to secret societies, to secret oaths, and to secret proceedings. Our differences worldwide would vanish if we were facing an alien threat from outside this world. We must guard against the military-industrial complex. Exopolitics, paranormal phenomena, and deep analysis of current world events. From somewhere in the desert, between Area 51 and Roswell, blasting across the planet, the Manticore Network proudly presents Fairy Tales. Because the truth will set you free. Headline edition, July 8, 1947. The Army Air Forces has announced that a flying disc has been found and is now in the possession of the Army. I'm as bad as hell, and I'm not going to take this anymore! The power they took from the people will return to the people. And so long as men die, liberty will never perish. Soldiers, don't fight for slavery, fight for liberty! The only thing we have to fear is fear itself! Sooner or later, though, you always have to wake up. Be skeptical, but don't close your mind. Greetings to everyone around the world, and a warm welcome to another edition of Veritas, alternative media for discerning minds. I'm your host, Mel Fabregas, and I sincerely thank you for joining me once again. And if this is your first time, make yourself at home. I want to thank all our members for your loyalty and support. Tonight's special guest is Peter Lavenda, a veteran of this show. We received a lot of feedback from his last appearance, and he is back to discuss the parallels between Adolf Hitler and Osama bin Laden. Could this all be part of a master plan, a continuation of what the Nazis started? Peter Lavenda will be with us shortly. To listen to tonight's full show, become a member. Just go to our website, veritasshow.com, click on the subscribe button, and instantly enjoy all of our material hundreds and hundreds of hours. If you're one of those who listens to half of each show, isn't it time to get the whole story? Stop waiting for just $7.95 per month, or the cost of two cups of coffee. You get access to all of it, and in CD audio quality. Subscribe today, and take Veritas with you wherever you go. 
And have you visited the Veritas store? There you can buy hats, shirts, mugs, our futuristic 8GB USB drive with Seasons 1 or 2 with bonus material, and of course, MMS. What is MMS? Listen to my interview with Jim Humble. You don't want to be caught off guard without it. And if you need to get in touch with me, click on the contact button of our website and join me on Facebook. Did you know that the day they announced the death of Osama bin Laden is also the day they announced the death of Adolf Hitler? May 1st, 1945 and May 1st, 2011, 66 years apart. Ironically, we have no corpse for either one, no gravesite, no shrine. This show is for all those who have suffered and died because of ideologies and stupidities for religion and race, for redemption and revenge. When coincidences multiply and words seem unequal to the task, we recur to people like Peter Lavenda, who's coming up next. This is Mel Fabregas, and you're listening to Veritas. Don't go anywhere. This is Dr. Joseph Farrell, and you're listening to Veritas. And today, we welcome a Veritas veteran back to the show, respected researcher and author, Peter Lavenda. To learn more about Peter Lavenda's work, visit his website at sinisterforces.info. And as I said during the last time, Peter Lavenda does not deal with speculative history. His work is founded on primary source material and historical documents. And directly from South Florida, I would like to welcome Peter Lavenda back to Veritas. Hello, Peter, and welcome back. How are you? I'm great, Mel. How are you? Great. Thank you. It's a pleasure to have you back, uh, Peter. We, we received a lot of great feedback during our last interview. So this is somewhat uh, part two, but it's going to include a lot of new stuff. And a few weeks ago, it's interesting because you posted something in your blog. I corresponded with you because you were the first person that came to mind when they announced the death of Osama bin Laden, which also, it's also the day they announced the death of Adolf Hitler. So May 1st, 2011 and May 1st, 1945, 66 years apart. Ironically, 
We have no corpse for either. Let's start here. What went through your mind when you heard these news? Well, my, my first reaction was, was sort of, uh, how shall I put it? Uh, it was a kind of non-reaction. Uh, it was, from an historical point of view, of course, this is a critical uh, a moment in history, I suppose. But at the same time, I was very curious about the details because in the first 24 hours, if you recall, we received many different versions of what happened, uh, all coming from uh, from the military, from the White House, essentially. So uh, this is not unusual in, in the case where things are chaotic. Um, it was an intelligence operation uh, for the most part. You had people watching the House uh, on and on and on. And finally, uh, there's the story that bin Laden was, was, was shot. So uh, a number of things went through my mind. Um, number one, I was curious as to how this entire project had taken place. Um, as, I, as I scanned the news stories and as I paid attention to the reports, it seemed that this had been going on for a few months uh, in advance that we had, uh, according to the official story, we had um, a CIA um, safe house uh, close by the, the house where bin Laden was, was, was captured, was shot. For months. Uh, for months. And they had been living in this area, which is surrounded by retired Pakistani military officers. And, you know, a CIA operation is living there for months with a stone's throw. I mean, they were close enough to watch the house through binoculars. Right. This, this seemed to me to be a little bit uh, hard to believe. Um, you know, as somebody who travels a great deal, I know how uh, conspicuous foreigners are in, in, in some countries. Uh, in the United States, not so much, because we are a country of immigrants and of foreigners. But in, in a place like Pakistan, you're going to stand out. And in a place that has so much security, where you have so, much, uh, so many military people, where you have, as they kept saying, Pakistan's version of West Point was there. You had all of these retired generals and other senior officers with their villas in that area. Number one, why wasn't bin Laden, if he was really living there, why wasn't he identified long before? But by the same token, how, how, was, how was our CIA station a, able to function under those circumstances, you know, and, and observe what's going on in the villa close enough? And yet nobody knew there were, there were strange, you know, Americans living in this house. I don't know. The whole thing seemed to me to be very suspicious. So that was the first thing that went through my mind. The second thing, of course, the thing that bothered me the most was the lack of a body. And the lack of the body immediately called to mind May 1st, 45. It called to mind the fact that we had no body for, for Adolf Hitler. In fact, people expressed doubt that Hitler was dead. Uh, the Russians expressed doubt that Hitler was dead. Even our own general staff uh, expressed doubts that Hitler was dead. Stalin at the Yalta conference um, told Churchill that he thought Hitler was still alive. At the same time, if you go back and look at the old news reports, from 1944 to 1945, there were persistent rumors that Hitler had actually died uh, during the, uh, the, the assassination attempt in 1944, or that he had died at some point between uh, July of 44 and May of 45. So there were rumors that he had been dead already, just as there had been rumors that bin Laden was dead for, for years. David Ray Griffin makes an excellent case um, for that in, in his book on bin Laden. So 
there's this idea that maybe bin Laden had been dead for years, and it's just now is the appropriate time to make some kind of an announcement about it with this story of this attack on the house in Pakistan. So my problem is, as it always is with an official story, number one, there are too many loose ends. Uh, number two, we don't have a body. So there's no forensic evidence, just as there's no forensic evidence in the case of Hitler, that, that someone actually died that day. And who that person was that died, the identity of that person, we don't have. Um, why is it taking so long for DNA evidence or any kind of forensic evidence to be offered to the world as proof? You know, the, the response of the government has been, well, no matter what we do, there's always going to be people who are not going to believe the story. Okay, fine, but that's, that's not enough of a reason. You know, give us your best shot, right? Tell us exactly what happened. Show us the DNA evidence. Show us the forensic evidence. Have somebody independently go and verify that. You know, and then we can doubt it later or we can cry cover up or do whatever we want. But don't withhold all the information and say petulantly, I'm not going to give it to you because you're just going to doubt it anyway. You know, if Pakistan knew about Osama bin Laden being there, they're a rogue state. If they didn't know, they're a failed state. Where do you see the relationship between the United States and Pakistan from this moment on? I think our relationship is can only be one of what they used to call realpolitik. Um, they have nuclear weapons. And that's the only thing in my mind that causes everybody to stop from doing what we should do where Pakistan is concerned. And that is to declare them a rogue state or a failed state. Um, the fact that they have nuclear weapons makes us forces us into a position of having to deal with Pakistan to make sure those nuclear weapons don't fall into the wrong hands. And we have a state that is uh, struggling with the, the influence of the Taliban on their borders on the one side. They are steeply suspicious of India on the other side. Um, the whole thing is a mess. I mean, Pakistan politically is, is a basket case anyway. Um, but we're trying to hold on to it. We're trying to maintain some semblance of normalcy there just because we don't want the nukes to fall into the hands of, of a terrorist or, or of a terrorist administration should the present administration fall. And you have a Taliban-oriented or uh, an al-Qaeda, let's say, uh, regime put in place that suddenly has nuclear weapons. So I think that's the only thing um, that's keeping us from denouncing Pakistan as a rogue state or a failed state. Um, I don't know if there's an alternative right now. I don't think we can go in and seize the nukes. That's going to be that would be a major military operation, and probably a few of those nukes would wind up escaping anyway. So I don't know. I don't know what the answer is to that. I I do agree with you though that our relationship with Pakistan is extremely tenuous, and we don't know who we're talking to. We don't know who the real power is. Is it the political administration or is it the military? Uh, 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 situation is, is it the army that we should be talking to and basically ignore the elected officials? I mean, how should we handle this? And I think that's a problem that our administration has, and I don't know if they have the answer to it. You're right. And uh, during the times of the of the tenure of, of uh, former President Pervez Musharraf, at least we knew that direct link there, allegedly. And now we just don't seem to be communicating. But uh, since you spoke about Afghanistan, we want to now negotiate with who supposedly was the number two man for the FBI and the CIA, and that's Mullah Omar. Have you seen the news where we were trying to uh, 
talk to him regarding the, the help with the Taliban? Yes, uh, I can say that. I, I, and I'm, I don't know what it means. You know, um, I'm so used to not getting the whole story until maybe decades after the events have happened that I'm trying to parse this uh, Mullah Omar story and try to figure out what is our our genuine intentions here. What are we really trying to accomplish? Um, I don't have a problem with talking to people who are supposed to be our enemies, uh, if only because it, it may help uh, defuse the situation before we're ready for it, or it may uh, help us to maneuver an opponent into a better position. So I can understand logic behind dealing with, with people like that, or at least talking to them. But um, there has to be a, a clearly defined goal here. And the terms of the relationship should be pretty clear. So if we're talking to Mullah Omar or if we're talking to uh, Zawahri or any of these people who are still around, uh, who I believe are still around, and you know who ha can have an influence on this, we should know what, what does that entail. Uh, people are afraid, on the other hand, that if we talk to al-Qaeda, for instance, we are legitimizing them somehow. Um, I think that ship left a long time ago. I think that what we have to do is is become realistic about our relationships with, with these groups. Um, I don't believe there is a real al-Qaeda the way it's been presented. I don't believe there is a strong uh, command structure or anything like that. Uh, I think it is quite loose. And I think we're going back to, again, 1945. Uh, with the defeat of Hitler and the surrender of the military, there were a lot of... Um, uh, rear guard actions taking place all throughout Europe. And there was the threat that there was going to be a group called the werewolves, which were essentially partisans, pro-Nazis uh, in the occupied territories who would conduct military operations against the Allies. Well, flash, uh, fast forward to today, and they're talking about lone wolves. They're talking about independent uh, terrorists operating in, uh, sort of inspired by al-Qaeda around the world. Now we have this other thing that we're, we're confronting, an underground network of subversives, which is exactly the situation we had in 1945 as well. In both cases, the dumping of the body of bin Laden into the ocean and what the Soviets claimed was the cremation of Hitler's remains and dumping those into a river. I mean, both bodies essentially destroyed and, and with a sea burial. Uh, the story is, well, we don't want their bodies to become a shrine for uh, future generations. That was the, the story that was given to us first by the Soviets in the case of Hitler and again in, in the case of bin Laden. So but, if but we're... With, with yes. Sorry to interject, but the, with the Soviets, they actually removed the body it was in, the, in, in the 50s and it was not until 1970 then where they cremated the body? That's correct. They They dug up the body, I mean, they found a body, or, or a number of bodies, which they claimed was Hitler, Eva Braun, and uh, Goebbels, the whole Goebbels family. Mm -hmm. Josef Goebbels, the propaganda minister, and his entire family, including six children. They claimed they found all of these bodies uh, at the bunker and uh, performed autopsies on them. The problem is, and it's a long story, but the autopsies of Hitler and Eva are extremely problematic for so many reasons. Um, we can get into that a little later, but the the bodies of, of Hitler and Eva, there, there were several of them over the period of, of a couple of months. Um, bodies were dug up and reburied. Uh, they were believed to be Hitler. Eventually they said, no, it's not Hitler. They found 
the body of one of Hitler's doubles, actually, and they photographed it uh, in situ. They photographed it where they found it at the, at the bunker. So Hitler had a double. The Soviets had a photograph of it, which has been reproduced in a number of places. And yet, they were easy to believe that that was the double and the body they had was really Hitler, and yet no photograph of that body really exists. There are pictures of charred corpses. There is a picture of what was supposed to be Hitler's skull, uh, which was later proved not to be. And what happened was they had the bodies. They performed some sort of, some sort of perfunctory autopsy on it. And then the, the KGB, well, the Soviet intelligence, Smersh in those days, the famous Smersh that uh, Ian Fleming wrote about in the James Bond uh, uh, novels. Right. Uh, death to spies was uh, was it was an acronym for death to spies. It was a Russian military intelligence. They had the body of Hitler and Eva, and they sort of drove it around Germany for a while. They they drove it up to a a, a town called Rathenau and they buried it there. Then a little bit later they dug it up and they drove it over to Magdeburg, and then they buried it there at uh, Schmerisch headquarters in East Germany. Um, they kept on digging up the body, reburying it, digging it up, and reburying it. I think a total of three times, uh, some sources say as many as six times, the bodies were buried and dug up again. Um, this doesn't make any sense at all, and no matter how. I was going to say why. Why, exactly. It doesn't make any sense. In the first place, uh, they didn't want the body to become, you know, the, uh, the grave, to become a shrine for neo-Nazis. Fine. You know, why are you digging and burying it up a hundred times? Yeah. Destroy the body the first time and it's right. all over, right? Or throw it into a river. I mean, no one would ever find it. No one would ever be able to prove it was Hitler's. The Soviets could not do it and the Russians still can't do it. So destroy the body. What is this thing of carrying it? It was like a motorcade driving this body around and then burying it in the middle of the night and then digging it up again the next morning and then driving it someplace else. The whole thing made no no sense whatsoever, but that's the official uh, Soviet explanation, and I have a copy of their their official published report on this on this whole escapade, and it's ridiculous. You know, it has it makes no sense. Um, and Stalin, to the end of his days, kept insisting that Hitler was still alive. Right. Now, Western intelligence says that Stalin was doing that. This is their story. Stalin was insisting on that as a kind of a psychological warfare operation against the West. He wanted the West to waste a lot of time hunting for a non-existent Hitler. Again, it makes no sense. In the first place, the West didn't spend a lot of time looking for Hitler. They spent all of their resources promoting the story that Hitler had died in the bunker, that he had committed suicide on April 30th, and the body was cremated the next day. That's the official version, and that's what they kept talking about uh, uh, for years. So the West did not really spend that much time time. So why would Stalin continue to insist that Hitler was still alive? Um, none of this story makes any sense. And it's because of 1945 that I look at 19, not 19, goodness, I look at 2011, 66 years later. Right. And now I'm trying to understand this story in that context, because we have, you know, um, uh, we, we have this template, we have this example from 66 years ago of how major nations get involved in the death of somebody who could conceivably be an icon or a martyr to to another group of people and how they handled it. They handled Borman the same way, you know. Uh, Borman, according to the official record, uh, again, very much in doubt, Borman's body was also cremated 
in the end, and then ashes dumped in a river. You know, all of these famous individuals wind up getting dumped into a river someplace or into the ocean, and we don't have a body, and we can't do the testing, and we, you know, we're unable to prove it one way or the other. I don't understand that. I really don't. If there's a common denominator, and, and as you're saying, they, they get allegedly cremated and they disappear, and uh, we write the history books, and that's the way it is. Why do you think they continue repeating the same story? Well, it has to be because to admit otherwise would be to reveal the existence of some other kind of operation which they want concealed. Uh, I believe that to, to admit uh, that these stories are false will automatically raise so many questions they don't want to answer. And I'm talking about since 1945 um, until now. Uh, if we if we finally admit to ourselves that, okay, we have no evidence Hitler died in the bunker. There is no forensic evidence. What we rely upon in this day and age is DNA testing. Even that, as it turns out, is questionable, but that's another story. But now we're talking about, you know, the forensic evidence that we're used to. Suddenly we're, we're denied this and we're, say, we're told, believe the eyewitnesses. Now, we all know how unreliable eyewitness testimony is. The eyewitness testimony in the bunker alone of the witnesses who were there is so contradictory that it makes no sense. If you read the Hugh Trevor Roper book on the last days of Hitler, and Trevor Roper was a British intelligence officer at the time who spoke no German, and yet he interviewed witnesses to Hitler's death and published the definitive <laughs> official version of the events. He had right? translators with him? Uh, I hope so. <laughs> right. And he did this whole thing in a matter of a couple of months and definitively proved that Hitler committed suicide in the bunker, nothing to see here, move right along. And that has been the official story. It was Hugh Trevor Roper, who in the 1980s verified the existence of the Hitler diaries, by the way. Was he the which, one who said that Hitler first took a, uh, ingested a cyanide pill before shooting himself? Yes, because that had to accommodate all the forensic you know, statements, all the eyewitness testimony, because you had some people saying there was cyanide. Uh, the, the, the Russians said there were cyanide uh, glass fragments in Hitler's jaw, uh -huh. which could only have come from a cyanide capsule, but there was also a bullet hole in the skull. Right. So in order to accommodate this story, we have this, this image. Now, the official story is that Hitler had Parkinson's disease. Right. His left hand was virtually useless. So now he's popping a cyanide capsule in his teeth and blowing his brains out simultaneously. A guy who could only even use one arm, right? The whole thing, again, it's just, it's, it's, it's ridiculous. Anyway, so Trevor Oprah publishes this account, and that's the Allied version. And that is going to stand for the next 60 years. That's the official version. Until, in 2009, in December of 2009, we get... Uh, the state archaeologist of the state of Connecticut, Nick Bellantoni, goes to Moscow, goes to the archives where they have Hitler's skull. He examines Hitler's skull and finds out there's something really wrong with this skull. Just from the appearance alone, it could not be the skull of a 50-year-old man. 20 to 40-year-old woman. Well, that's what happens. He, brought, he brings back a, a couple of fragments. They're tested back in Connecticut. And we definitively prove once and for all the skull the Soviets say is Hitler's is not Hitler's. So now we are back to square one. We go back to 1945 and we say, why were people lying about this fact? What did they have to gain? What were they covering up? And they had to be covering up something of monumental proportion in order to keep pr pr promoting this lie. 
that they had Hitler's body, they had definitive proof. I've just been reading uh, the official version put out by the Soviets back in those days, which is an English translation now. It's called the Hitler Book. And in this scenario, where they have captured the German uh, members of Hitler's staff, they've interrogated them mercilessly, as you can imagine. And the story they have is that people were standing in the corridor outside of Hitler's room, and they smelled gunpowder. And that's why they went into the room and found Hitler dead. Whereas the Hugh Trevor Roper version of the story has people hearing gunshot, two, uh, one gunshot, and they run into Hitler's room and they find that Hitler's just killed himself by shooting himself. So we have eyewitnesses who claim they heard the shots. Then we have eyewitnesses who claim they didn't hear any shots, but they smelled gunpowder. You know, two completely different stories which right away raise a lot of questions. As was demonstrated recently, it was impossible to hear a gunshot from outside the bunker because of the walls were so thick. And from where the staff was standing and from where Hitler was supposedly shooting himself, it would have been impossible to hear a gunshot. So it's possible that the Russian version of this particular end of the story is more accurate than the story we've been given by the Germans. Because once we've done the studies, we find out that the German staff was lying at least in, in several important cases. Even the dates are all wrong. Some people insist that Hitler was, was, was dead before April 30th. Others claim he was still alive on May 1st. And these are all eyewitnesses. Uh, others claim that it was impossible for Hitler to have escaped Berlin by air. There was a big story about this. Uh, it was impossible. Uh, Berlin was under a constant barrage, constant attack. You couldn't fly a plane out. And yet one of Hitler's favorite pilots, Hannah Reich, flew in and out of Berlin on April 30th a couple of times with no problem. You know, I mean, there's, there's, there's a lot of, of uh, duplicity where this story was promulgated. And I'm only talking about all of this now because it makes me think about the bin Laden story, and I start to apply, you know, th this precedent, this infamous precedent of, of May 1945, uh, on the same day, you know, the synchronicity of it is what flagged my attention. I might not have even noticed it, except for the fact that it, it all happened on the same day, on May 1st, 45, and May 1st, 2011, that that synchronicity sort of shocked me into thinking, whoa, what are we dealing with here, you know? Uh, two men, supposedly very ill, right? Bin Laden with his uh, dialysis and his kidney problems and Hitler with his Parkinson's. Uh, they're both uh, isolated. They're both isolated in a, in, a, in a concrete bunker, essentially. They're both out there, and they're, they're both dead mysteriously through gunshots, bodies destroyed, dumped in the water. We don't know anything more. Uh, all of those synchronicities piled up, and I said to myself, I have to look at this thing more closely. Um, because I already have enough reason to doubt the official story of, of Hitler's death. Now I have to look at the bin Laden story and wonder what is wrong with this story. You know, and my problem is we may not know the full details of this for years, if not decades, because of classification procedures and everything else. We're being given an official story, uh, and we don't know if it's true, but we have to live with it. Just like we've had to live with so many stories that were later proven to be false. So by, li by living with false history, we make false decisions or decisions based on bad data. Where our elected leaders are concerned, for instance, we go to the voting booth thinking we know American history and we know what we've done when we don't really. 
Uh, we make decisions uh, based upon foreign countries, our reactions to foreign people, foreign entities based on things we've been told. Uh, because we have no choice, we live in a kind of manufactured reality. You know, and history is uh, is the first casualty of this, or as they used to say, truth is the first casualty. So I, you know, I, I'm I'm disturbed because I don't know what to believe, and I would like to to know, you know, what to believe. I would like to know what the truth is about all of this, uh, starting with how we financed Bin Laden in the beginning, with uh, with financing the Taliban against the Soviets, and bringing that whole story up to date, and what exactly took place you know why were, were we afraid to take bin laden into custody you know uh was it really necessary to shoot him were well, allegedly we afraid? allegedly president clinton was offered osama bin laden and he refused to accept them because he didn't have jurisdiction right okay so you know one thing after the other and as you say history is written by the winners and there's a few disconnects here once again let's go back to the the osama bin laden a story. If the CIA was occupying a house nearby, which is, by the way, folks, close to a military base and intelligence for Pakistan right there. If the CIA was there, and as you obviously have heard, that th through the whole raid, there was a video blackout. Okay, let's say that that was true. If the CIA was there for months, wouldn't we have some kind of footage or some kind of surveillance video to determine, yes, he is here, and they have to share that information. Now that he's dead, why not share that with the world? Sure. I agree. Now that it's all over, why are we keeping secrets? Right. Right? I mean, the, the most infamous character, you know, uh, of our generation, of the post-World War II generation, has been apprehended and, and killed. Um, we can't keep all the rest of it secret. You just can't come out and say, you know, we got him, he's dead, and then leave it at that. You know, there's got to be more to it. There, there, you've got to be able to come out and, and talk to us and give us some more information. Keeping the secrets of this, I can understand keeping the identities of the SEAL team members secret sure. or of the CIA. Of course, no problem with that. But as far as the details of those months of surveillance, how did that happen? You know, how did that take place? Uh, you don't have to give us, you know, secret methods and all the rest of it, which is what they always say. We don't, you know, reveal identities or methods. Okay. I understand that, but you can give us more information than what you've told us. You can't drop a bombshell like like saying we've had a CIA you know uh, operation, a cell in the same town within spitting distance for months, and just leave it at that and not have us ask a lot more questions. You know, um, why tell us that in the first place then? Exactly. And, and, and then you know we, something. Go ahead. Yeah, go on. No, go on. And they keep saying that they don't want to release the, the uh, alleged, I continue using the word alleged because I'm not convinced about anything, but the pictures of the deceased body. But then here they are releasing the pictures of uh, four of the bodies of the men who were there. One of them shows a, uh, a uh, plastic water gun next to his head. I hope that's not what they thought was his gun. Uh, but then we go back to 2003 when they showed us the pictures of uh, Saddam Hussein's sons, Uday and right. Kusay. They were right. totally graphic and they showed them to us. So what's the really the excuse of not showing this picture to finally convince the world? Well, because probably nobody will be convinced. Yeah. Well, do you know there is another aspect to this too, which I didn't realize because when, when I first heard it, I was sort of, I was in disbelief. Evidently, although Osama bin Laden was carried on the FBI's most wanted list ever since uh, the uh, the coal incident in uh, in Yemen, 
He was never actually he was charged, never charged correct. with 9-11. Yes. I mean, the FBI said they didn't have enough information to charge him with that. So if he was never charged, how is it that we killed him? It's I, my silence is my is my statement. I, I'm 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 speechless. I don't know, you know. I was um, gonna, I was going to comment about legally. I was going to comment about this, Peter. But I thought you know maybe there's some some loophole, legal loophole in the middle that allows this. But if if you and I are in a charge of of any crime, then it's a crime to go kill him. Well, if I'm not charged with with the crime. And and the FBI, you know, or whoever knocks down my door and shoots me, I would like to think that was a murder. Yes. <laughs> you know? yeah. I would like to think that somebody would be pissed off over that. But, of course, you know, we had enough on bin Laden for the coal incident, you know, uh, the attack on the ship in Yemen uh, in the 1990s and for the attack on the uh, on the embassies in Africa. So we had him for that. Uh, technically speaking, you know, he was most wanted uh, for those things. But obvi- I, oddly enough, not for 9-11. And that's, that's kind of weird. You know, is the FBI actually ignoring all of the evidence that the 9-11 commission came up with and all of the other commissions that kept constantly placing the blame squarely on bin Laden for this? And then for some reason, the FBI legal people figured they didn't have enough, you know, to indict him for it. Uh, I, I I was shocked when I heard that, and I'm still dumbfounded. I still can't figure out how that how that happened. I really wonder what the government of Pakistan is thinking right now. You know, we go there, no permission whatsoever, and I can understand if this story were true that you don't want if he's in Pakistan for for probably years that you don't want to alert anyone. Obviously, if he was there, he was being protected. Don't you think? Absolutely, of course. And there's no way. I mean, I agree with you. If this story is true the way it is, naturally, we would not have alerted Pakistan uh, because that would have meant alerting bin Laden immediately. I mean, from our point of view, that's what would have happened. Uh, If Pakistan knew he was there, obviously, by telling Pakistan we're coming in, that would have been it. Bin Laden, according to the official story, was able to escape so many times at the last minute because of a phone call he got just before, you know, uh, a team showed up to take him out. So there was constant uh, cooperation between bin Laden, at least, if not all of al-Qaeda, but between bin Laden and elements of the Pakistan military or elements of the Pakistan government. So Pakistan does not have his house in order. So there's no way we could tell Pakistan officially we're coming in. But then that raises a lot of other questions. We did, you know, conduct a raid on a sovereign nation, as we've done so many times in the past. We did it with Noriega in Panama, for instance. And I'm not, I have no problem basically with with doing that, except that it's illegal and it, it violates, you know, sovereignty. And from a legal perspective, we should not have done that. We cannot just go into a foreign country and, you know, kill its, its, its leader, um, you know, because we decide it's the right thing to do. I, I do think that there should be rule of law. And I think the United States should be the, the, the beacon to the rest of the world where rule of law is concerned. So when we do this stuff, we've got to have some kind of legal background to it. We've got to be able to explain it legally uh, to show that we did things according to our own laws and international law in as far as we subscribe to those international laws. Uh, We should have done that with Noriega in Panama, what we did there, although I, I have no love for Noriega whatsoever, I think our method of handling that was wrong. Um, our method of handling Granada was was kind of weird, uh, and so many other instances, you know. 
Um, the well, thing also, to go to Iraq too. I mean, what did we find? Well, of course. Well, but without saying, you know, and I've I've often had this this discussion, and it's a very sensitive one in South Florida. Uh, I have this discussion with uh, with the Cuban community down here. Yes, you know, and the Cuban community is 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 very anti-Democrat, very pro-Republican. They, they try to swing Florida Republican all the time. Uh, and the basis of that is, of course, Cuba itself, Castro and that whole situation. And I always tell them, I say, listen, open your eyes to something. The, the, the administrations of the United States since Kennedy until now have had no problem <laughs> invading other countries and taking out their leaders, you know. We've had no problem. We did it with Noriega. We did it. In, we, we've tried to overthrow the uh, the Sandinistas in, in Nicaragua. Uh, we've done you know Iraq twice, uh, on and on and on and on. I said, but for some reason we've never and since Bay of Pigs we never invaded Cuba, but we keep promising you we're going to invade Cuba, you know, to get your vote. Right. But we don't actually invade Cuba. Will you please understand that this is the real world of politics? It's manipulation. You know, we're going to do what's in the best interests of the United States. And as long as it's not in the best interest to invade Cuba, we don't invade Cuba. But we somehow thought it was in the best interest to invade Iraq this second time, you know, looking for the weapons of mass destruction. Everybody knows the story. So what's the deal? You know, where's the consistency in our behavior? Where's the consistency in our values as a country? Uh, whether the values are pro pro-democratic. Or whether they are legal values, or what are they? We have to define them, and we just don't do it. We just do stuff, and, and then we try to find an explanation later. And for the record, I I am here speaking with you because my parents left Cuba after the Cuban Missile Crisis. However, mm -hmm. that said, I am tired of the embargo. I am tired of 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 continue continuing a policy. If you go to the doctor and they tell you that you're sick about something. And after decades and decades of the same treatment, it doesn't work. You change course, correct? So why is it that we deal with China, which is a communist country, just like Cuba, and we deal with Vietnam, where we we lost over 56,000 of our soldiers there? However, we don't deal with Cuba. That's not any threat to us. Of course. The, Cub the Cubans are being manipulated in this case, and I keep trying to open their eyes to this, but they, they don't want to hear it. But I agree 100%. We, we had no problem dealing with, with China. And since since the 70s, man, you know, China these days is 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 still a communist country. But back in the 70s, man, it was really a communist country. Yeah. We're talking Cultural Revolution time, and there's Nixon, you know, toasting Mao, you know, and and Cuba's right there. You know, we do nothing. We know th th this is ridiculous, and the blockade, believe me, is is ridiculous. It hasn't worked. It hasn't it hasn't accomplished anything. You know, so let's let's you know do what we did in China by exporting ourselves there, by bringing our technology there, by bringing our people there. Uh, eventually, China started to warm up, at least where capitalism was concerned. If we had done the same thing in Cuba back in the 60s and 70s, there would be a democratic uh, administration in Cuba now. I'm positive of that. It's our blockade that kept Castro in power for so long. And, you know, I know somebody who told me about a year or two ago that he was approached by the Cuban government because they needed to to buy a new fleet of cars, about 25,000 vehicles. And they approached somebody from General Motors because they wanted to buy. And they said, sorry, but we cannot sell the cars. You have to go elsewhere. How does that help the United States, especially during this economy? Of course. And what, how is giving 25,000 cars 
to Cuba going to endanger our security? They can't drive right. to Key West. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Exactly, so, exactly. I mean, I don't mean to deviate, but I think it's very relevant because we're going to be talking about China during this show as well. But going back to Hitler for a moment, Hitler was allegedly removed from the bunker with Eva Brown, doused in gasoline and set ablaze, then buried. A year later, skull fragments were dug up by the Russian forces, which seemed to confirm Hitler had been shot himself in the bunker. Now we get to Osama bin Laden. They killed him and they immediately removed the body and drop it in the ocean and saying that that was to avoid making a shrine but that's even against a muslim the muslim religion isn't it well technically speaking a sea burial is permitted if there is no other way to bury the body um for instance if you're a muslim at sea if you're in a navy right uh it's not necessary to bring the body back and find earth to bury it in uh, sea burials are permitted um it's it's a technical point on which Muslim theologians debate, but one thing is certain: uh, in terms of Islam, they should have contacted somebody uh, in Bin Laden's family to ask them, "Do you want the body?" Because that is customary to first ask the family, "Do they want the body? Do they want to bury the body?" We didn't give that opportunity to Bin Laden's family, but Bin Laden has an extensive family, and we were talking about brothers and sisters and cousins, we're talking about hundreds and hundreds of people, um, and a very wealthy family uh, as well. So I don't believe that the idea that we have to bury the body within 24 hours was the overriding concern. And if they had to bury the body within 24 hours, which is Islamic law, they could have buried it anywhere in the desert, you know, under a rock someplace, and no one would ever have found the grave. Um, they could have done that almost any place in the Middle East. Uh, and buried it, and then walked away from it. You know, uh, who would who would have found it had they buried it in in the desert? Um, it, the the sea burial seems to be to be really going the extra mile to make sure that body is not discovered. Right, exactly. And even the government complains that they say you know all of these conspiracy theories that continue to question what we have to say. They never believe anything. But they're well, <laughs> giving us every single reason, Peter, to doubt. Of course. of course. I mean, why do you think people doubt? I mean, this is why. This is why there are conspiracy theories, because nobody is, is, is straightforward with this. We're expected to believe whatever it is they say. Not only that, we're expected to believe whatever the last thing was that they said, right? We can't even call them on the fact that, oh, wait a minute, yesterday you said this. If you remember during Watergate, they had that marvelous term, that explanation is now inoperative. <laughs> it's no longer the one we're using. We're using this one now. So you have to believe this one. It's, it, I mean, what, what rational human being cannot be a conspiracy theorist under these circumstances? You know, it's either the, uh, what, what are the alternatives? Yes, and I thought I heard the last numbers were about, I think, between 85 and 87 Al-Qaeda operatives around the world. How many soldiers have we lost? How many trillions of dollars have we lost? We continue just losing and losing and losing, and we don't do anything with the. I don't care what they're saying that we made strides in Afghanistan and Iraq. Please, when is when does it end? Well, it's not going to. They've they've pretty much said the so-called quote-unquote war on terror has no end date. I mean, it, it's going to go on for for decades probably, which is an open-ended blank check. Yes. 
you know, to, to, to the military, to the Pentagon, and to all of the industries that depend on the Pentagon, the same thing that Eisenhower warned us about, you know, uh, the military-industrial complex. I mean, we are, we are suffering from that now. They're the ones calling the shots in this case. If, if we continue to operate the way we have been, we are not making any friends anywhere around the world. We're only contributing to the growth of, of terrorism. Uh, the Iraqi invasion contributed to the growth of that. Our presence in Afghanistan is doing that. If we've got bin Laden now, and he's definitely gone, according to the official story, then there's no reason for us any longer to be in Afghanistan. I mean, th- th- we should be pulling out today. you know. But obviously, that's not the reason. We have other reasons. So tell us what they are. You know, Be upfront with us. Don't send a whole bunch of talking heads out to all the news shows giving us vague stories uh, that contradict each other. This guy from the Pentagon says this. This guy from the State Department says that. Tell us. Tell us the truth. We're paying for this. And honestly, We're paying for it in blood and treasure. So tell us what's going on. If you're going to listen to the mainstream media, you know, folks, you're not going to get the truth. I mean, just t- take Fox News, for example. 18% of Fox, uh, of, of News Corp, is owned by a Saudi prince. So you, you know that the information is going to benefit a certain group. But if the embassy in Iraq, in Baghdad, is a sign of our permanent, uh, permanent posture there, $700 million dollars, it is the, the the most expensive and the largest embassy ever built. <laughs> We're not going anywhere, Peter. Of course not. No, we're in there for the long haul. There's 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 no way we're leaving. Um, and as long as we're there with that huge a presence, that means we're going to be directing as much as possible the uh, the, the lives of the Iraqi citizens. We're going to be the people who are calling the shots there. Uh, you can't you can't look at an embassy that huge, that modern, that well developed with that men, that many personnel and come away thinking that your your government does not owe that embassy its its existence uh, that that's just a fact you know it's the american military presence is there we may have withdrawn so many x amount of troops from there but one of the things that also bothered me about that withdrawal and the numbers that they touted was that nobody told me how many independent contractors were withdrawn from iraq we don't know if those numbers were made up from the former Blackwater. You know, we don't know how many of our independent mercenaries are in Iraq right now to replace the soldiers that we officially removed. I haven't seen those figures. I can't find them anywhere. It's a business. It is just a business to perpetuate the profiteering for the military-industrial complex. But, folks, so that you know how big this, this gargantuan building is, the compound is six times larger than the United Nations compound in New York and two-thirds the size of the National Mall in Washington. It has space for 1,000 employees with six apartment blocks and is 10 times larger than any other U.S. embassy. Good factoid there. And ask yourself, why is that in Iraq of all places? You know, what is so important today with the death of Saddam Hussein and the fact that there are no weapons of mass destruction, on and on, why is Iraq that important that we have to build something that massive in that country? You know, what is it all about? And if you start backtracking from there, you might open your eyes to why we even invaded Iraq in the first place. Because otherwise, Iraq, let's face it, is a developing nation. You know, it's not France that we're building this embassy in. You know, it's not even Moscow. It is in Baghdad. Come on, why? Well, I have a question for you. You know where the fourth largest U.S. embassy is located at, right? Where's that? Haiti. Why? (laughs) Why? (laughs) 
<laughs> That's probably larger than half the country then. Yes. It's the poorest country in the Western Hemisphere. What does Haiti have that we need so much presence there? I, I don't know. I've been to Haiti, and um, I can tell you that is poverty is, is, is an inadequate word to describe the situation in Haiti. Yes. Um, I mean, I love the people, and I love the culture. Yeah. But the, the problem is the poverty and the sickness. They have illnesses there that were eradicated in the rest of the Western world 100 years ago that are still endemic in that population. You have a very oppressed, poor uh, country. Why do we need so many resources there? I can see helping the people. I can see helping them because of the earthquake. I can see doing what we can from a humanitarian point of view. But why is there, why the necessity for that huge political presence? That's mystifying. Not even in the Dominican Republic. And you right. know, Dominican Republic is poor if you've been there. I love it too. Sure. But yeah. uh, Haiti, I, I just don't, don't see, one thing is, and we could do a whole show on this, but historically, the French, first of all, charge them billions of dollars that they have been paying forever. And that's one of the reasons why Haiti is such a poor country, because they've been indebted and still enslaved by those who made them a colony in the past. Sure. But there was also the theft of the Duvalier family. Yes, of the course. Ongoing, the ongoing, you know, uh, I was there during the time of Baby Doc. And, uh, and he's back. Was, and he's back, you know. It's just, I don't know, my, my mind boggles, you know. But yes, they. I mean, the corruption in Haiti has been going on for a really long time. But we've aided and abetted that corruption. You know, our, our whole posture on Haiti since the time of God for the last hundred years has been that using Haiti basically as a bulwark against other regimes and making sure that Haiti didn't go communist, right? So as long as Papa Doc was, uh, was in charge, there was no danger of Haiti becoming a communist state. So we poured all kinds of money into that regime uh, because it was, you know, close enough to Cuba and we kept it, uh, quote unquote, free and democratic, you know. So free and democratic is like a fair and balanced, as what right. other media organs say. Yeah. You know, it really wasn't. So, you know, this, this, this contribution we make to corrupt regimes doesn't stop. It just does not stop. But then you have Jean-Bertrand Aristide that was taken out of the country. He wasn't even knowing where he was being taken to. Just because right. a few weeks before, he wanted to raise the minimum wage. All of a sudden, he was taken out. Yeah, exactly. And people complained... Uh, when Clinton, under the Clinton administration, we sent troops in to Haiti yes. because Aristide had been elected president. We sent in troops because the military wanted to get rid of Aristide. Uh, we sent our, our people in there to uphold that democratic process. And we were blamed for that, for this military interventionism and all the rest of it. And there was all of this, this, this screaming about there was going to be another Vietnam. Uh, I remember Clearly, I was in Puerto Rico at the time of that invasion, and people were telling me, oh, my God, it's the end. And we didn't lose one soldier in that, in that uh, mission. We lost no one. We put Aristide back in power, which is what we're supposed to do if we believe in upholding democratic elections, which is what we give lip service to all mm -hmm. the time. I found that to be logical and an acceptable use of American military force and also a very inexpensive use in terms of money and in terms of lives lost. We lost no one in that military operation. So we you know we have precedents in history for what we should do and how we should do it. It's just that there are too many other people with agendas. There are too many other forces at work in our government 
that we we can't we can't do the right thing because every time we try to do the right thing, there's like ten other corporations, organizations, agencies who are telling us we can't, and unfortunately we listen to them, and we screw up constantly. But with so many dilapidated bridges and and schools in the United States, and, and the poverty level continues to grow. And we keep putting money into dictators. I mean, let's not forget, until recently, Egypt. The man, Hosni Mubarak, is, is, it's, it's appraised to, to be worth about, what, $80 billion? And we right. sent them, what is it, $4 or $5 billion a year for the, the term, for all the decades he was there? Where, did, where, where is really, where is the money going to, if it's not going to the people? Well, of course, and we all know the answer to yeah, that. You know, right. it just lines lines their pockets. It winds up in Swiss bank accounts or in the Cayman Islands. It, it's, and we do this knowing that this is what's going on. Look at all the money we lost in Iraq alone. Mm -hmm. You know, the billions of dollars that we were putting into Iraq that went missing. Right. You know, how do you how do you lose that much money? Um, how do you lose two point three trillion dollars? Well, there you go. Sure. Yeah. How do you do it? Yeah. Exactly. I mean. It, And, and the problem is, uh, Peter, that people don't rise up and and demand accountability. As I always say, and people laugh at my statement, but my very first job was at a grocery store. I was a cashier. I lost $50. I was suspended for two weeks. But here we ha have uh, Secretary Rumsfeld losing $2.3 trillion, and nobody says a thing. Yeah. And it could be because people in charge know exactly where that $2.3 trillion went. And the rest of us have to just suck it up and move on. You know, we're not allowed to ask these questions. As I said at a, a meeting in, um, in Amsterdam uh, uh, some, some weeks ago, yes. I said, you know, we have this problem of classified documents. Um, our history, the real things that happened to us, the real things that happened in, in our world in the last hundred years are still classified. We're not allowed to see them. We're not allowed to know them. We're, we're considered to be like children who can't handle the truth or whatever it happens to be. And yet, the obverse, the reverse of this is not acceptable. We cannot go to the U.S. government when they want to find out something about us, our medical records, our insurance records, our financial situation. We can't go to them and say, I'm sorry, that's classified. We don't have that right. So we have no right to our own privacy. And yet the government has a right to its privacy. And to me, this is a crucial issue because privacy for me is a major issue. It's a major uh, concern. It's something that I think should be protected constitutionally, if nothing else. Um, and it's not. And with technology, we're giving away our privacy willingly on things like Facebook and everything else. We're surrendering our identities. We're surrendering our privacy, making it that much easier. As Julian Assange said, uh, the guy who responsible for WikiLeaks, saying that Facebook is the greatest thing that ever happened to the intelligence community because we're just willingly showing them who our friends are, who our circle of our, our networks are, uh, what our interests are, everything else that's right there. That's know? right. Gmail, I mean, same thing. Right. Same thing. We're just going right out and handing, it, handing the governments this information. So it, it, the privacy issue is something that really bothers me. Um, it's, it's a one-way street uh, in, in the world. It's a one-way street. The citizens have no privacy, but the government has privacy. And that really disturbs me because now we're faced with these historical events of monumental proportions. We have an economic crisis in the United States and around the world. We have military uh, events taking place all over the world. All of this is going on, and we're not allowed to know 
the details about any of it. And yet I have to tell everybody my social security number, you know, and all the rest of it. I can't hold anything back. And I always say that uh, we haven't reached a cashless society because of the drug trade. Because, you know, how are you going to pay for your drugs? With a credit card? I don't think I'll see that (laughs) coming soon. But, you know, people who go to the grocery store or to the drugstore and buy medication or, or what have you, now the insurance companies will have this information available to them. And in the future, you may not be able to buy a, an insurance premium because you're buying liquor or you're buying, uh, you know, medication for depression or what have you. This is the ultimate Aldous Huxley moment, uh, Peter. Yeah. This was, he was not writing science fiction after all. No, no, that was a book of prophecy. You know, that should be, that should be the, uh, another book of the Bible, I think, because that he really did predict what was going to happen uh, to us, you know, in the future. And, you know, I might be more inclined to understand these ideas where, you know, the insurance companies have to know that you're not a heavy drinker, you're not taking these medications. I don't agree with it, but I can kind of understand it logically, except for one major flaw in this whole argument. And that is that our medical establishment doesn't have a clue either. You know, because they keep changing their mind as to what's healthy for you and what's not healthy for you. They they have a a, they treat symptoms and not diseases. They don't treat the whole person. So they really don't have as much information as we as they like us to think that they do. So they're going to be making decisions based upon faulty data. They're going to be correcting this data as they go along. But as they do. Those of us who have been denied coverage or denied medication or denied surgery because of bad information or a bad understanding of the science have no recourse. We're going to suffer first until science gets its act together and realizes, you know, really what does make us healthy or not. So even in this one case, even in the case of medical insurance, I don't see even the logic in that because you have to know they don't know what they're talking about half the time. I'm not here bashing the medical establishment in general. It's just that if you pay any attention to to television programming these days, all you see, especially in South Florida, oh, yes. the rest all of the, the commercials, sure. All the commercials My about God. medicines. And the problem is I don't know what half of these things are for. All I know are the side effects. You know, they'll come on with a commercial and I, I challenge any of your listeners to, with a stopwatch. When one of these commercials comes on, time it. The first five seconds or so of a 30-second spot will tell you what the medicine is for. And the disclaimer is about 25 seconds. Exactly. Suicide, depression, you know, heart attack, stroke. And you're hearing this on a constant, constant basis. It's as if we're being programmed subliminally to get sick. Because all we're hearing about is not the great things this medicine is going to do, but all the bad things it could do. And then in the end... You can't buy it anyway. Your doctor has to write a prescription for it. So what is the point of the advertising? I don't get it. You know, are we, have we become our own doctors now? And our, our doctor is just a pusher? Is that what, what we've come to? That's exactly right. And I hate to say it because I, I know many of my listeners are, are, are medical doctors, but they have become the new drug pushers. And when President Eisenhower said, beware of the military-industrial complex, I want to add military, industrial, pharmaceutical, penitentiary uh, penitentiary complex. Because, yeah. as you said, whenever I go to Florida to see family, I turn on the TV and the preponderance, and we have that here in Arizona too, but when we go there, it's almost 90% of the commercials are dealing with, with uh, the elderly or uh, talking about medication. 
Yeah. But if anybody has doubts that the corporation is really in charge of this planet, go back two years ago with the swine flu vaccine and the swine flu quote unquote pandemic. They raised the World Health Organization raised the level to six when only about, what was it, 1,200 people had died around the world. And that year alone, the year before, 256,000 people died in the United States alone of the regular flu. Where was the WHO with their pandemic level? Exactly. Exactly. And these are the people who want to have access to all of our private records, our shopping uh, preferences, uh, our histories in everything. These are the people who want to be in charge of this information and to make decisions on uh, affecting our lives. Based exactly. on, on, on this, kind of, this kind of bureaucracy is going to be making those decisions. I mean, let's get real here. You know, This is wrong. This is just absolutely wrong. Something very seriously wrong is happening here. And the only motivation that I can see has got to be a materialistic one. These guys are going to make money at it, and that's, that's all they really care about. You know, um, that, that's all that it is. And we're sitting here thinking, well, as we're always told, the United States has the best medical care in the world. I agree. We just can't afford it. You know, uh, we cannot afford the medical care that we have. Other other people may be able to afford it, but not us. So we're we're put in this position of paying through taxes and through everything else and through our own medical bills for an institution that is extremely faulty, for an institution that contradicts itself and disagrees with itself all the time. We have a World Health Organization that considers you know a pandemic, as you said, 1,200 people, whereas we lose tens of thousands to other diseases that are not part of the epidemic or the pandemic. What is wrong with this? And how many thousands die every year of prescribed medication that supposedly the FDA have to have years and billions of dollars of research before they approve them. But anyway, we have to take our one and only break. And when we come back, Peter, I want to discuss something that I found, and you probably have found it too, on the FBI.gov website. A lot of information has come out regarding memos written to and from J. Edgar Hoover regarding Hitler not having died at all. But tell us once again how to get in touch with your work by all your great books. Yes, well, my website is uh, sinisterforces.info, not .com, but sinisterforces.info. Or, of course, my books are available everywhere on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, all the usual suspects. Great. I'm here with Peter Lavenda. Always a fascinating show. We have so much more to discuss when we come back. This is Mel Fabregas, and you are listening to Veritas. Don't go anywhere. Thank you very much for listening. We're going to talk more with our special guest in our members section. If you're not a member, just head on over to our website, veritasshow.com, and click on the subscribe link to listen to the rest of the show. As a member, have you subscribed to the iTunes link? Let iTunes download all segments of each new show automatically. There's a link in the members section. Just click on it and let iTunes do the rest. We'll take a short intermission, listen to some music, and we'll be right back with more. Enjoy.
This is Jordan Maxwell, and you're listening to Veritas. <laughs> 